please be seated and turn with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, chapter 5 today, we'll be reading. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 640. I'm continuing on all the way to 641. It ends on 641. So Ezra chapter 5, we'll be reading this in its entirety. It's also in your large print sheets. Ezra chapter 5, reading this chapter in toto. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tachanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king, they sent a letter to him in which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, 
and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God which is in Jerusalem, but from that time even until now it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Well, beloved uh, people of God, here in Ezra 5 and continuing on into Ezra 6, we have all kinds of interesting things. We have politics, including bureaucracy, international intrigue, and even an example of ancient architecture. Here in our text today, we just read chapter 5, but we'll be, Lord willing, we'll be reading both chapters 5 and 6 next Lord's Day. So in both of these chapters then, we see that God triumphs over his enemies in the rebuilding of the temple. God triumphs over his enemies in the rebuilding of the temple. Now this what we're dealing with today, and Lord willing, next week, is the last part of the first section of Ezra. So the book of Ezra, ten chapters. You have the first six chapters, and then the last four. So this is now the last part of this first major section of the book of Ezra. Now in chapter four, as you may recall, some weeks ago when we preached on that, the scene was rather dismal. Because you'll notice in verse 24, after the opposition, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But now, as we come into chapter 5, now things are, now there's hope. Now things are starting to change. Here in these chapters, we have a very careful historical account One of the things, uh, you may be aware of the fact I've been working on a biography of my father, and one of the things I've been dealing with is correspondence, including love letters, for that matter, uh, from him to mom, but also other correspondence, sometimes government, sometimes church correspondence. So this is one of the ways in which we understand or, or can come to an understanding of history. And this is what we see here. These are official Persian documents. The land of Persia, what today we would say the the nation of Iran, that same area of the world. These are official government, Persian government documents. I mentioned several weeks ago something very interesting as well in our Uh, in this section, and that is the use of what we call Aramaic. Aramaic is like Hebrew, it's similar to language to to Hebrew, but it's technically different. 
And so here in Ezra, this is one of about two places or so in Scripture where actually, because of the quotations of these passages, uh, that actually is the use of Aramaic. So the first thing we note today, the first major point, is the spur to action. The spur to err, he might stirring up to action by means of the prophetic call. This is what makes the difference. It's everything is, is dismal, is dark, and now all of a sudden things are changing. How is it that they are changing? Because God sends not one but two prophets. The prophet Haggai, whose name means festival. And you remember that over a period of weeks, we talked about Haggai and uh, uh, preached from there. And then Zechariah, Yahweh, or the Lord, remembers. The Lord remembers. Uh, Zechariah apparently was born in Babylon. He was from a priestly family that returned. And so the prophetic call goes from these, and notice it, it goes to the Jews. These prophets prophesied to the people, that is to say, to the Jews, verse 1, who were in Judah and Jerusalem. And of course they did so, how did they do so? In the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So let's take just a few minutes now to think about the message or the messages that those prophets gave. You remember when I preached on Haggai that uh, it began in chapter 1 with regard to bags with holes. And so children, I'll mention it again. This is probably the last time for a while, but I'll mention it again how if you had a a paper bag or a plastic bag and you, you put coins in that bag, but that bag had holes in the bottom, you're not, you shake that up a little bit, you're going to lose all your money. That's the picture that the prophet gives. You are, you are so involved with material things, with getting material possessions, and yet in point of fact, it's going to be futile. It's going to be worthless. It's like earning all this money, but just putting all that money into bags with holes. And then, of course, the idea of a uh, glorious uh, temple. So we talked about that in chapter 2. And then towards the end of chapter 2, the fact that the people were unholy. They were not what they ought to be. And yet, they were chosen. And therefore, they were blessed by God. That's the message that Haggai brought. Now, turn with me in your Bibles... So turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Zechariah. You'll find this on page 1280. Page 1280. We're just going to give a very, very brief overview of some of the themes in uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. So page 1280. Page 1280. It's interesting. You'll notice here in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Verse 3, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, 
says the Lord of hosts, and I will return of host. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your prophets, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So we then have, first of all, this call to repent. This call for repentance by Zechariah. Repent, turn from your evil ways. Then starting in verse 7 and going on for several verses in chapter 1, we see the horses. We see these these horses that are sent. And part of what we learn from that is that God can bring help from all over. He has not forgotten his people. This is part of the message that Zechariah the prophet is giving, is giving in order to stir up the people in terms of getting back to work. At the end of the chapter, verses 18 through 21, we have the horns. By the way, horn, a horn... Uh, like on an animal, this is a symbol of power. This is a symbol of power. And these nations then that had exercised their power to gore Israel, to use those horns to gore Israel, those nations themselves are destroyed by God. Again, this is part of the encouraging theme that Zechariah is giving to them. Don't be afraid. They're going to be, those nations will be destroyed. Uh, chapter 2, 1 through 5, we see the measuring line. The measuring line. And basically, you'll notice in uh, verse uh, 4, uh, he says, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so Israel, you see, the extent of God's future city cannot be measured by human means. So again, this is all part of the encouragement by Zechariah in terms of the people to get back to building the temple because of the symbolism and also the reality as well uh, in terms of that temple. In chapter 3, uh, we have a very interesting picture with regard to Jeshua. And uh, notice, notice here, this is one of those places in the Old Testament where Satan is talked about. Then he showed me Joshua, or Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments who was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. 
So here we have the great exchange, if you will. Sins and all the filthiness of those sins. Those sins, those filthy garments are exchanged for a glorious robe of righteousness. And this, my friends, is the basis for the prophecy and the basis for the work that the, that the, the Jews were to do in Jerusalem in terms of rebuilding the temple. That temple itself was pointing forward for Jesus Christ. And it was on the basis of his sacrifice that the people would have a right relationship with Jehovah, with Yahweh, not on the basis of anything that they could do, but on the basis of what God would do in his son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verses 1 and following, we see the golden candlestick. And of course, when you, when you think of a golden candlestick like this, candelabra, if you will, what do you think of? You think of light and life and beauty and comfort and glory. What's interesting is that part of what is being portrayed here is that this, that the, the message then is going to go ultimately from Israel to all the world. That we, the children, the, the children of God, Jesus said, we are the light of the world. And so God provides light to us, but we turn around then and bring light to the world. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we have the flying scroll. So it's written on. This scroll is written on, has a, contains a list of, of uh, crimes... And yet, God says, what is he saying here? Uh, Even though you are discouraged by having so many bad people among you, that's all going to be swept away. Verse 4, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. But you be faithful, you see. And then the huge measure, the huge basket, which is used to bear away sin and temptation. Chapter 6, we have the four chariots. These are God's messengers bringing aid to the Jews from afar. Again, this is all part of what the prophet is saying in terms of encouraging the people with regard to God's sovereignty and God's care for his people and therefore, on that basis, and on the basis of the, the redemption that God brings, on the basis of those realities, get to work, rebuild the temple. <clears throat> the crowning of Jeshua, Joshua, we see at the end of chapter 6. Well, we can't go through all of this, but I would just point out the very end of Zechariah. So as you go to chapter uh, 14, Page 1293, verses 20 and 21. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them in that day. There shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So we see then the idea of holiness, of holiness permeating all of life. Well, 
these are the messages, or among the messages, that Ezra, or that, excuse me, that uh, Haggai and Zechariah brought to the people. And so how do the people then respond to this? Well, we see the response in verse 2, do we not? We see that, that the leaders, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, what did they do? They rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in... We see here that the leaders started to lead once again. And we see here then that civil and church leaders were working together. Civil and church leaders, ecclesiastical leaders, were working together in terms of the kingdom. We also remember that this is a faint reminder of the threefold office of the Lord Jesus. So you have the son of Shealtiel, and so that's the civil leader, the king, if you will. Jesus is king. You have uh, 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 Jeshua, the son of Jozadak. Well, that's the priest. Jesus is priest. He's our high priest. And of course, who also did it? Who also was involved here? The prophets. Jesus is also prophet. He's prophet, priest, and king. And so we find here a reminder once again of how all three offices are are combined in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they got to work then. They began again to build the house of God at Jerusalem. And I will also notice the prophets of God were with them, helping them, encouraging them. Because, my friends, the journey is long. The work is hard. Building the kingdom is tough work. Just look around us here in Atlanta. This is tough work. And yet we are given the encouragement by God and by his prophets not only to stir them up but also to continue to encourage the people. The prophets of God were with them helping them, reminding them, as we just read, in terms of, of the prophecy of Zechariah, reminding them what this is all about. It's not about their works, ultimately. It's about the grace and the sovereignty of God and his gospel. So, the spur to action then. And, but now, we have a problem. There's intrigue here international intrigue. There is the objection. Notice the crisis then. There's a crisis similar to what we found back in chapter 4. But, of course, there's going to be an out, a different outcome this time. Notice the confrontation. Verse 3, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shetharth, Bosnai, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you? to build this temple and finish this wall. You can just imagine a, like a, a bureaucratic inspector coming along, right? So that's what you have here. So those involved, Tatanai, Shethar Bosnai, and their associates. Now, Darius, King Darius, had just come to power, and Darius had had to face rebellions. 
And so the Samaritans then, Tatanai and so forth, would have been quick um, to bring, uh, I should say, the Samaritans would have been quick to bring this matter to Tatanai's attention. And uh, using that as an excuse in order to stop the work once again. Well, interestingly, there's an investigation. There's an investigation. And so, verse 4, then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. And so there's an investigation. Names were taken. Okay? Names were taken. But what did the Jews do? They showed courage. For the Jews gave answer and kept right on working. Well, that's the crisis, and it's going to be brought to a head by means of this letter, this letter. Again, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, you don't have to be a historian to be fascinated with this. I hope you're fascinated, intrigued by this, in terms of this letter, even the form of it, and so forth. Verse 6, this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. And so he identifies himself, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians, who are in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. So we're reporting back to headquarters, okay, to Darius the king, all peace. And so this letter then opens with the standard greetings, but notice also in verse 8, something very interesting. It then refers to the temple of the great God. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple, or the house, literally, of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. It's interesting that they refer to it as the temple of the great God. And then the letter goes on to present the Jewish argument. If you're charged with something, you get to give your, your side of the story. And the Jews had given their side of the story. And now, very carefully, their side of the story, as their defense, is being presented here in this letter. So what do the Jews say then? The first thing you'll notice is that they say, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. So, verse 10, by the way, I just mentioned again, we also ask them their names to inform you. We're going to tattle that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. Verse 11, and thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And so they were right away referring to who the true and living God is. Then notice, we're rebuilding the temples built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Of course, that was Solomon. And so a great king had, had done this work previously, but because of the anger of the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar had punished the people. Verse 12, because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, by the way, it's interesting. I thought the wrath has been taken care of by Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? That 
We can use wrath in an absolute sense. We can use it in a, perhaps a less absolute sense in terms of God's fatherly displeasure. And that's what we find here. Because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar was used as the instrument of God to punish God's own people. Now, here in verse 14, you see the shame. You see the shame, the great shame, not only the destruction of the temple, but the vessels of gold and silver brought to the pagan temple. The great shame. I mean, if God is really God, then why is it that his temple's being destroyed and that it's being plundered by these pagans? You see, it's great shame. Ultimately, not shame to God. It's shame to the people of God because of their sin and rebellion. By the way, Bazar that is mentioned here is probably the same as Zerubbabel. But notice verse 13 However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God and then to restore the vessels. This temple had been in building since then and was not yet finished. Well, I have two points of application today. The first is this. Always remember the foundational nature of of the word of God. Always remember the foundational nature of the word of God. This is what we see with the two prophets mentioned here. The word of God. The word of God. It's the word. But it's the word of God, you see, not just the word in a general sense. That's what we see. God's prophets are bringing God's word. And in that regard, in terms of this foundational nature of the word of God, notice that it is the word of God that gives us the ability to see the truth. And for that matter, it enables not only the the people of God to see the truth, as Haggai and Zechariah preach these messages, encouraging them, challenging them, calling them to repentance, calling them to encouragement, and so forth, it not only gives them to see, it gives them the ability to uh, see the truth, but also, ultimately, it is a light, just like that golden candlestick, it's a light to the world as well. Even this message, you see, reproducing the, the argument by the Jews is a light, it is bearing witness to Darius, it is bearing witness to Tatanai and the others. And so it is the word of God that gives us the ability to see the truth. In thy light we see light. Thirdly, it is the word of God that gives us the ability to have the courage of our convictions. The people were discouraged. Chapter 4. They left off from building. They were discouraged and they, they, were, um, they refused at that point to continue on. But now the word comes, you see, through these two prophets 
and stirs them up and gives them the courage of their convictions so that they say, the, the, notice what it says, verse 5, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not, that is to say the opponents, could not make the Jews cease till a report could go to Darius. We're just going to keep on going. Sure, we'll give you, your na- uh, give you our names, but we're not going to stop. And it, that gave them that ability to have the courage of their convictions. And so it is true for us. And fourthly, in this of remembering the foundational nature of the word of God, my friends, it is the word of God that must be proclaimed. It is the word of God that must be proclaimed. Notice, by the way, the various doctrines that these Jews declared. Verse 11, God is the God of heaven and earth. That is to say, he's the creator and he owns and he is sovereign over everything. They proclaimed that. They weren't ashamed to proclaim it. It's the word of God that must be proclaimed, as the Jews here did. Secondly, in this regard, sin is serious. We, that is to say his people, we provoke the God of heaven to wrath. Verse 12. He was upset with us. He was not pleased with us. Sin is serious. And so the nature of sin then is proclaimed. He is also the one who judges in the earth. That's why he's the one who sent Nebuchadnezzar to punish the people. And he is the one, God is the one who directs all events. Verse 13, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Why? Because God had prophesied about Cyrus decades before that I'm going to raise up my servant Cyrus, you see. And so it is the word of God then in all of these matters, including the sovereignty of God, including the fact he is the only true and living God. All the gods of this world are false gods. There are manifestations of the devil filled with demons. There's only one true and living God. And his word must be proclaimed. And therefore, I would finish this point of application by saying, my friends, don't be ashamed of the word in front of the world. Don't be ashamed of the word in front of the world. Don't be ashamed. It is the sword of the Spirit. And so use that's powerful. It is the very word of God. It is the word of Christ. It is the word which comes out of the mouth of Jesus as he slays all of his and our enemies. You know the old saying that the pen is mightier than the sword? The word is more powerful than even military weaponry. And indeed, that is true. That is true. And don't be ashamed, therefore, as we may be called upon in our own day to give reports to authorities. Don't be ashamed. 
of the word in front of the world. Don't adopt the world's standards saying, well, I have my belief and you have yours. No! Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all. He is the mediatorial King. It is his word that is going forth with power and authority as he exercises his rule, as he brings about the destruction of systems and kingdoms and governments that refuse to bow the knee to him. It is that word that goes forth. Do not be ashamed of it in front of the world. Always remember the foundational nature of the word of God. But number two, follow the example of these Jewish leaders. Follow the example of these Jewish leaders. You know what? They simply decided to obey no matter what opposition. And that, my friends, is what we must do. And this is very similar, is it not? Very similar to what we find in Acts chapter 5, where Peter and the others were called to... to, uh, uh, give answer, called to account in terms of the signs and wonders. And uh, the high priest and others rose up, were filled with indignation. Their hand on the apostles, hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison and so forth. And what did they, what did they say when when the high priest asked them, saying, verse 28, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Oh, but he didn't stop there, did he? We often stop at verse 29. He went on. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. It's not exactly the way to win friends and influence people. But actually, it is, is it not? Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's the example we have of Peter and the apostles in the first century. Acts 5. But of course we also have this example in Ezra 5 today. There may be all kinds of examples today in which we need to say we're going to obey God rather than man. We're going to keep doing what we're doing in terms of building the kingdom. This could be in terms of proclaiming the gospel itself. It could be in terms of not allowing the civil authorities to intrude into the government of the church. It could, for example, if the government says, oh, you may not discipline people. What does the church say to that? It says, no. No government authorities, no civil authorities. No, you have no authority in the church. It is King Jesus. Even if you punish us, 
for exercising government threaten us with a lawsuit. I'm not saying that's, I don't have anything in particular in mind, I'm saying as a hypothetical. But also not giving in to civil authorities when they order the church not to meet for worship, as happened in this country and in Canada and other places. No, my friends, follow the example of these Jewish leaders who simply decided to obey no matter what the opposition was. Do so, look ever to the one who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one portrayed by Zechariah, the one who enabled the great transaction in which our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness, his blood, are imputed to us. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we thank thee for thy word of truth, and we pray, Lord, that it would indeed be the sword that it is. We pray that we might learn how to wield the sword appropriately, properly, with understanding, with love, with compassion, with grace, generosity, with mercy, but, Lord, also with definiteness. And so give us the grace, O Lord, to do thy will and to follow Christ no matter what. No matter what opposition may arise in the church or outside of the church. So protect thy people, O Lord, and build thy kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.